1: Good evening, good evening again, and welcome to Capitola Book Cafe's event with author Salman Rushdie. Um, One more time, I'm Janet Leimeister, I'm the event manager and co-owner of the Capitola Book Cafe, so very quickly I'm going to go over the schedule first and foremost, now is when you turn off your cell phone, okay, do that first. Salman Rushdie will discuss his new book, The Enchantress of Florence, through his conversation with Rick Kleffel. Rick Kleffel is the host of our public radio station, KUSP Public Affairs Show, Talk of the Bay, and a contributor to National Public Radio's Weekend Edition and All Things Considered. Mr. Rushdie will then take questions directly from you. Raise your hand, and if chosen, speak loudly and please be concise. The book signing will follow immediately. We have pre-signed copies now if you're not able to stay through the end. The signing line will again form in the house left aisle, then run across the front of the stage, and then go out the opposite aisle. Mr. Rushdie will sign all of his book titles, but he only has time to personalize the new book. Photographs are allowed, but please take them quickly. And again, um, all of this is to make sure that the author and the audience is happy and safe all night. Capitola Book Cafe would sincerely like to thank everyone here tonight for support of this event. Most of you understand that we work to bring to our community a bit of its uniqueness, offering a place for public conversation, a range of titles that reflect your interests, plus the single-minded pursuit of authors we know you want to meet, including literary greats like Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie is one of the most celebrated authors of our time, a man with a dazzling imagination, a scholar with sweeping interests, a storyteller for the ages. He has been a mindful, critical witness to some of the most complex, shifting moments of his generation. The end of British colonial rule of India in the East, where he was born. The cultural revolution of the 1960s in the West, where he was educated. The intensification of Islamic extremism around the globe, where he truly is a leading citizen of our shrinking, interconnected world. Through his works, both fiction and nonfiction, he brings the cultures, languages, faith, politics, sensibilities and sensualities of the East and the West together, highlighting their irreconcilable differences and their perfect symmetry. Salman Rushdie is the author of now 10 books, including Harun and the Sea of Stories, Shalimar the Clown, imaginary homelands, the explosively controversial The Satanic Verses, which pushed him into hiding, and Midnight's Children, which not only won the coveted Booker Prize, but was also named The Booker's Booker, or the best novel to have won that prize in 25 years. With The Enchanters of Florence, he again masterfully blurs history and fantasy to tell a tale only he could craft conjuring the city of Florence at the dawn of Italian Renaissance and the flourishing court of India's ancient Mughal Empire. Please welcome Sir Salman Rushdie.
0: Salman, it's really clear from the get-go, when we look at the vast body of your work, that you're really interested in storytelling. Yeah. And and it's clearest, absolutely clear in this new book, but I'd like you to take us back to the first time you ever heard a story that captured your imagination and made you think maybe you wanted to tell stories.
2: Well, I guess um, one of the good things about growing up in India is that from the beginning you're exposed to this enormous storehouse of of so-called wonder tales, you know, of which the Arabian Nights is just the most famous collection. And there are other, I mean, the Arabian Nights actually comes from Indian origins, um, and there are many collections like that in India. And I guess my father was, was the person who told those stories to us as children. So I first heard all those stories in his versions as, as kind of bedtime stories, I suppose, and, and sort of fell in love with them. And that was one big thing. And the other, my mother told different kinds of stories. My mother was a world-class gossip. <laughs> <laughs> <You know. laughs> my mother knew where all the bodies were buried. You know, she, she, she knew exactly who did what to whom and when, and you know, et cetera. And like all genuinely great gossips, she couldn't keep it to herself. <laughs> so, so we would get all this information, which was often spectacularly juicy. Uh, um, and there was a certain point where she said to me, She said, I'm gonna stop telling you this stuff because you put it in your books so I get in trouble. <laughs> um, but actually, of course, she couldn't stop telling me <laughs> because, because that was that was her art, you know. And and I think it's often the case in families that. Women are the repositories of stories. You know, they're, they're the people who remember the family stories and all the little secrets. And so I had this contrast. I had Alibaba and Sinbad and Aladdin and so on from my father. And I had the truth about uncle so-and-so, <laughs> you know, and, and what my aunt really did with the movie star and, you know, and all that stuff from my mother. And they were, you know, it was a good combination.
0: As a child, did you try to write stories down yourself? Yeah, I
2: did a bit. Um, I mean, the one that I, that I wrote about later was that when I went to see The Wizard of Oz in Bombay, um, I must have been, you know, 10, 11, and I really liked it, and I came home and, and I wrote a story called Over the Rainbow, which wasn't anything to do with Oz. It was, it was a story about a boy like me in a city like Bombay walking down the sidewalk, and he sees not the end of the rainbow, but the beginning of the rainbow, the rainbow arcing away from him up into the sky. And rainbow rather usefully had steps cut into it, rainbow-colored steps cut into it. So, so he goes over the rainbow, you know, and he has adventures, meets all kinds of creatures. And I can't really remember the creatures that he meets, except I remember a talking pianola. He meets a talking <laughs> pianola. That's the bit I remember. Anyway, I gave this story to, to my parents to read, and my father proudly took it off to the office had got his secretary to type it up. So then I had it, you know, kind of in print. Wow, that's You know, in sort of four or five pages. And then my father, I suppose, thinking that I was only a kid and I would lose it, decided that he would keep it, because he would keep it safe. And I think as I grew up, he came to think of it as belonging to him. (laughs) (laughs) And he wouldn't give it back. And I I would say to him, you you, you know, that story, I mean, this is after I became a published writer. I would say, you know that story? Could I, you know, have, could I have it? Does, does he still have it? And no, well, he, he said he, he died a long time ago, but he, he said um, he always would make some excuse and not bring it back. And then when he died, we turned his office upside down, but we couldn't find it. So having kept it because he thought that I would lose it, he lost it. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't, I'm afraid it's gone. You
0: became a copywriter. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about writing advertising and how did you get there from Mumbai?
2: Well, I mean, I'd been to school and university in, in England by then and, and, um, and I wanted to write and, and had no money, essentially, so I had to get a job. And I got a job writing advertising copy. And, um, well, the good thing about it is that it gave me a kind of writing discipline which I've never lost. I mean, that's to say, when you know that the client's coming in Thursday morning and it better be good and ready, you know, and it, it, there's no time to have temperament. You know, you've just, you've just got to do the job. And having learned that habit of just sitting down and getting it done in time and okay, possible, you know, um, that served me very well i think because it, it means that now that i write like that i just do it like a job i just sit there every day and do my daily work and i did do, i had some famous advertising campaigns what what did you have well you when you see here in americas so you wouldn't know but it's uh, in england i had two there was one there's a in england in england there's this thing called the milk marketing board which advertises milk and milk related products milk and cream and so on they have advertising for cream cakes. So I was asked to come up with commercials for cream cakes, encouraging people to eat more cream cakes.
0: <laughs> because we know we need to eat more yeah, cream cakes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: So I came up with this slogan. The slogan was naughty but nice. Oh, <laughs> well, that was a precursor
0: and, of your work to
2: follow. And, and, when I, and, and when I presented it to them, they were horrified. And, and they said, you are telling people that cream cakes make them fat. And I said, you know, people know that cream are there. <laughs> really? And I said, you should just focus on the but nice. <laughs> and anyway, eventually, after a certain amount of, of argument, they agreed to, the, the, to do this thing. And suddenly, it became, this, I mean, it became this national catchphrase. People say it now in England. They say th- that things are naughty but nice. And it may be the most famous three words that I will ever write. <laughs> um, and when, you know, people discover that I'm the author of those words, they look at me with new respect. <laughs> 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 yeah. um, I also wrote, I don't, know, I don't think you have, here there isn't, there, in England there's a thing called Aero chocolate bars, which are, which are aerated chocolates, so they've got bubbles in them. Anyway, I was supposed to be helping, it wasn't even my, my account, I was helping out the guy whose job it was, and he was f- jammed, he couldn't think of anything good. And so I was brainstorming with him because, you know, see above, the client was coming in at 3 o'clock and he'd got nothing to show him and he was terrified. Um, so we were sitting there having bad ideas and, and getting increasingly um, worried. He had a habit when he got worried that he would sweat profusely. So there's sweat pouring off him, you know. And, and the other thing that happened when he got worried is he began to stammer. And so in the middle of this, the, of us trying things out, the phone rang. And he picked up the phone, you know, sweating and stammering. And he, and he said, no, no, that's, that's Im- impossible. And he, st- he, stam- he stammered on the word impossible. So he, he said, impossible see. <laughs> and I went, ding. <laughs> and, and while he was on the phone, I wrote down lots of words that ended in bubble. I thought, you know, adore a bubble, <laughs> "irresistible bubble, delect a bubble. <laughs> you have a bus sign which says transport a bubble. You have a shop sign in a shop window which says, Avail a bubble here. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have, you have a, 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 an ad in the, trade, in the trade press saying, Profit a bubble. <laughs> well, and, familiar with And those. so on, and that, that campaign became very famous too. So this was, this was my contribution to advertising. <laughs> uh, but it did, it, did me, it did me a big favor, which is it brought me to the United States for the first time. I mean, let's say I had never been to America. And two things happened. One is I had to do commercials for shampoo. And well, well for Clairol. I had to do nice and easy. You're the do author
0: of Nice and Easy? I am. Oh my God. You know,
2: <laughs> I told you. That's a big deal. I told you people look at you with new respect <laughs> yeah, when you say yeah. this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, and it, was, you know, it was winter in England and they wanted summer. So, I, so the first time I came to LA, I actually came to make nice and easy commercials. And the thing I remember best about it was, you know, you have to go around with policemen everywhere if you're shooting out of doors. So we had our two cops, and remember, this is the time of Starsky and Hutch, right? And, and our cops had clearly watched slightly too many episodes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they had, you know, mirror shades and stuff. And uh, one, of the, one of the, and we were filming on the sidewalk somewhere in LA, you know, and um, the, the cop comes up to me and he says, he says, sir, would you like me to stop the traffic here? And I said, no, there's no need because we're filming on the sidewalk. And he said, oh, okay, um, because I could stop the traffic. (laughs) 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 And I said, you know, no, it's all right, you don't have to. And he said, okay. And then 20 minutes later, he came up and he said, you sure you don't need me to stop? And I suddenly realized what I was supposed to do. And I said, okay, could you stop the traffic? I I completely didn't need him to. (laughs) He said, could you stop? And he jumped out and he said, stop, he stopped the traffic. And then, then, he, then he'd had a good day. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did that, and then I, had, I also got a job to advertise the United States as a vacation destination. And I had to write the United States Travel Service. I had to write ads in England to encourage people to take their vacations in America. And I'd seen virtually nothing of America. So they sent me on a trip across America. Wow! They sent me on a holiday across America as, I guess, as an employee of the Nixon government um, <laughs> in order to be able to come back and write ads about it. I've always remembered, I walk, one of the places I went was Vegas. And I walked into the tropic, and Vegas in the 70s, you know, it wasn't the theme park that it is now. You know, I mean, Vegas in the 70s was gangsters and whores. That's, that's why you didn't have children there. Yeah. You know? No, no. You didn't I- have fake Paris. And, crap like that, you know. <laughs> you had beautiful art deco hotels, gangsters and prostitutes, that was it. Um, and, and gamblers, you know, mugs, coming to lose their money. Um, so I arrived and I was, you know, I had long hair, I had hair. <laughs> I had long hair and I had like a Zapata mustache, and, you know, all that stuff of the early 70s. And I walked in there and it's like these bouncers converged. From different parts of the hotel to throw me out, you know, because I clearly looked inappropriate for the Tropicana Hotel, and then I had this card to produce, which showed that I was a government employee. (laughs) Kind of like Elvis. So I produced this card, and they kind of melted and fawned, and it was and it was (laughs) so good to watch these huge people with telephones coming out of their ears, you know, suddenly fawning when they'd actually be coming to to throw me out. Instead, they had to grovel. It was very satisfying. <laughs> so, so, you know, thank you, Richard Nixon. I guess. <laughs> so that's that's what advertising did for me. And then, at certain point when I, I mean, I had, you know, I got, I managed to get it to the point where I only did a job two days a week. In Those days, I, I ad agencies that were different then. They quite liked having strange, creative people to come in part time. They thought it kind of enriched the talent pool. And I did so. I was working two days a week, and that's how I wrote *Midnight's Children* essentially. You know, because I mean, I didn't. It took me five years to write that book, and I didn't have any other money. You know, so I would do two days in the agency and five days as a novelist. And then when the book came out and you know it kind of it was well received, I thought now it's time to quit. So I went to the oddly named the creative director. They're called. It's kind of a oxymoron. Um, <laughs> and I, I went to see him, and I said, OK, you know, I, I'm quitting. And he said, oh, you want a raise? <laughs> and I said, no, but, you know, I wrote this book, and that's what I really want to do is write books, and it's come out, and it's done well, and now I think I owe it to myself to you know, try and do it full time, and so I'm supposed to give you 30 days' notice, and so this is it, and in 30 days from now I won't be coming in. And he said, oh, you want a big raise? <laughs> 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 and, and I said, I said no, um, really, I'm just not going to be here a month from now. <laughs> and he said, I don't think we could give you as much as that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually the truth is that when I did leave, I, I think until the day I left, he thought I was negotiating. You know, he thought it was a game of chicken. But then when I did leave, and after Midnight Children had its, you know, won the Booker Prize and so on, the first, well, the first two telegrams I received, you remember telegrams? Yeah,
0: I, back <laughs> in the old days. There
2: were these things called telegrams. Um, I, the first telegram I got was from a very grateful bank manager, because suddenly my account was for the first time ever not in the red. Um, and secondly, and my second telegram was from him, the creative director, and, and very sweet telegram. It said, it said, congratulations, one of us made it. Because you know, you know. actually, you know, if you go around the creative departments of ad agencies, everybody's got in the drawer, they've got a sitcom or a screenplay or a novel or you know some way out in the bottom drawer. And I'm the guy who made it out. You know?
0: So. Congratulations. Yeah, no, I mean really. Because <laughs> otherwise
2: I'd still be writing chocolate bar commercials. <laughs>
0: When you started writing Midnight's Children, you were working at an ad agency. Mm -hmm. And that's a novel that has a huge historic reach. It has a a lot of um, fantastic literary flourishes. You really invented a form of literature with that novel. Tell us a little bit about uh, doing that kind of research and putting together that intense a project while you're writing ads for
2: candy bars. I know. Well, well, I mean, I just... There was no other way to do it, you know, because I, I, I knew it was going to be a very long project, and and I had to pay the rent. You know, so it was just the least the least time-consuming way of paying the rent. Um, but I, I don't know. I had I had published one novel before Midnight's Children, Grimes, which had not done very well, and had been you know kind of a damp squib as first novels go, and and I, I guess I had I felt d- depressed for a while that I had made this you know, false start. And, and in the end, I, I sort of went through a long period of arguing or going through for myself what I thought was wrong with it and what I thought I should do instead, and really reconstructing in my mind what I thought about writing and how it should go and what it should be. Um, very long, kind of painful period in many ways, um, of self-doubt and, and kind of rethinking.
0: Well, to be fair, that novel was nominated for a, a science fiction award which a publisher Refuse? Yeah. They want you to be a science fiction writer?
2: Yeah, that is true, um, but that's probably says more about science fiction than about the novel, <laughs> um, <laughs> about the competition, if you know what I mean. Um, but I did go through this process, and in the end, I I came up with a, a, well, I just decided that I should do the most ambitious thing I could think of. I kind of go for broke, you know, um, Hollywood or bust. You know, that everything, all your eggs in one basket. And and I thought, what what's the most daring and difficult and complicated and outlandish thing I can think of? And that turned into Midnight Children. And it took me it took me five years to write. And the reason it the reason one reason it took so long is because while I was writing it, I was finding out how to write it. You know, I was sort of learning how to be a writer on the on the job, if you like. And, and and I've, I mean, I've always remembered, because it began when I first started writing it, it, it wasn't written in the first person. It was a third-person narration, and it kind of wasn't alive in some way. And so I remember that there was a day when I thought I would try to write it in the first person, to see what happened if I gave the central character the narrative voice. And that day I wrote what is, I mean, substantially wrote what is now the opening paragraph of, of Midnight's Children. And I was... I can't tell you how excited I was. I, f- I just felt a thing come out of me and onto the page, which was more powerful than anything I'd ever managed to write in my life up to that point. And I could tell that there was just a kind of sizzling energy in that, and I thought, where did that come from? You know, just by allowing him to speak, you know, by just giving, his, giving him his voice. And I thought, well, wherever it came from, you know, that's what you want. And then I understood that I'd made the right decision to let him tell the story and that really essentially I had to just let him run and just hold on to his coattails, you know, and, and that he would write the book. And, and I've always thought of that as the day that I really became a writer. Uh, and, you know, by finding his voice, by finding Salim's voice in Midnight's Children, that in some way I found mine as well. You know? and, uh, and after that, the book became exciting to write. And, and yet I was always nervous because, you know, I'd had no real success as a writer. Up to that point. And when I finished it, I thought, as far as I can tell, this is a good book. You know. But I also thought, maybe I'm just an idiot, you know, maybe I don't <laughs> maybe maybe I don't know what a good book is. And and I remember thinking if people don't agree with me about this, that this is a good book, then you know, then I should just stop trying to waste everyone's just stop wasting everyone's time and, and just give up the dream, you know. So there was a r- huge amount of writing on that book for me. And you know, fortunately, paid off. I mean, fortunately, people did like it.
0: That book and many of your subsequent books have riffed from uh, *Arabian Nights*, and I wonder if you talk about the importance of that book to you as a writer, and also to the kind of subgenre or the genre that, uh, that you represent, or as magic realism or whatever type well, you're calling it.
2: Type. Yeah. Well, the thing is that if you grow up with those stories the first it's kind of rather an obvious thing to learn but it's a thing that sometimes i think people forget which is that stories are not true you know they, they're all made up Lies. none of none of this stuff ever happened <laughs> you know it doesn't matter how naturalistically you write it's still all made up these people don't exist they didn't do that stuff you know it's not true <laughs> 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 At the moment at which you understand this important fact that fiction is not true, (laughs) (laughs) um, it it liberates you. You know, suddenly you're able to write different kinds of untruth. You don't have to just have one kind of untruth. You you don't just have to have, have the untruth that pretends it's the truth. You can also have the untruth that recognizes that it's untruth. You know, we all know that carpets don't fly. You know, we all know. We all know that. And yet, in a story when the carpet flies, we like it.
0: It's exciting. Because
2: we understand the kind of untruth that it is. You know, And for me, the thing about the Arabian Night stories was that it gave me that freedom as a writer, that liberty, uh, to be untrue in an untrue way Uh, some of the time. And sometimes, of course, to be untrue in a true way. I mean, the other thing I think that's really fascinating about those stories is the frame narrative of Shahrazad. Um, I mean, here you have a story about the brutality of men. I mean, here's this man, this king, who because his wife is unfaithful to him, um, he kills her, of course, and then decides that for every day of his life, he will marry and deflower a virgin and then kill her the next morning as a kind of act of revenge against women. And he's been, at the point at which the, the Arabian Nights begins, he, he's, he does this for three years. You know, that's over 1,000 women that, that have died. And the only woman that has he's deliberately not chosen is this, the most beautiful, most intelligent woman, Charizard, who is the daughter of his, his, his first minister, his vizier. And eventually she volunteers for the job. She says, I'm going to do it. Uh, which is terrifying to her father, because her father is the one who's obliged to carry out the executions. You know, so there he is now thinking, tomorrow morning I have to execute my daughter. And, and if I don't do it and decide to attack the king and then we're both, anyway, it's a terrible you know, quandary. And what she does is to begin to tell these stories. And by, by the use of the cliffhanger and other devices, she never finishes a story. And so he allows her to live for one more night so he can hear the end of the story. Now, every time she finishes a story, she takes the trouble to immediately begin another one. You know, so that at the end of the night, the stories never ended. You know, um, each, each night of the Arabian night, nights ends with the same sentence. It ends with the sentence, she saw the approach of the dawn and fell quiet discreetly. And, and then the king wants to know what happened next. And so anyway, this goes on for a thousand nights and one night. And during the course of this, a number of things happen. The first is that he falls in love with her. The second is that they have children. Um, And the third is that at a certain point, the threat of death clearly evaporates. Clearly it's now only theoretical. He's not really going to kill her because he's in love with her and she's the mother of his children, but she's still telling the stories. And when she finishes at the end of of the Thousand and First Night, what has happened is something extraordinary. She has civilized him. You know, by the power of story, she has turned this barbarian into a civilized man. And that's, it's a wonderful story about stories. You know, and uh, again, that was very inspiring to me. I mean, this book is kind of a story about stories, and it owes quite a bit to Shahrazad.
0: It does, and it features a, a wonderful enchantress. Uh, I'd actually like you to uh, read a piece here to, to give our audience some of the flavor of the book. And um, let's see, it's this part right here. We're gonna hear about uh, an unfortunate uh, employee of the emperor.
2: Yeah, this is a a minor maharaja who he's decided to take a dislike to largely because he's got a a mustache that competes with the emperor's own. (laughs) He's ripped the mustache. It's over here. He's ripped the moustache <laughs> off his face and he's, and he's planning to execute him. Um, the Rana of Kuchnahi, young, slender, and dark, had knelt at Akbar's feet, his face hairless and bleeding, waiting for the blow to fall. History repeats itself, he said. Your grandfather killed my grandfather 70 years ago. Our grandfather, replied the emperor, was a barbarian with a poet's tongue. We, by contrast, are a poet with a barbarian's history, and a barbarian's prowess in war, which we detest. Thus it is demonstrated that history does not repeat itself, but moves forward, and that man is capable of change. That is a strange remark for an executioner to make, the young Rana said softly, but it is futile to argue with death. Your time has come, the emperor hinted, so tell us truthfully before you go. What sort of paradise do you expect to discover when you have passed through the veil? The Rana raised his mutilated face and looked the emperor in the eye. In paradise, the words worship and argument mean the same thing, he declared. The Almighty is not a tyrant. In the house of God, all voices are free to speak as they choose, and that is the form of their devotion. He was an irritating, holier-than-thou type of youth. That was beyond question, but in spite of his annoyance, Akbar was moved. We promise you, the emperor said, that we will build that house of adoration here on Earth. Then with a cry, Allahu Akbar, God is great, or just possibly, Akbar is God, uh, he chopped off the pompous little twerps, cheeky, didactic, and therefore suddenly unnecessary head.
0: This book deals quite a bit with religion. And one of the things that I really liked about it was you have a kind of uh, this vision of polytheistic religions Mm. uh, as being superior to monotheistic religions. Tell us a little bit about that and and where you derive that idea from.
2: Well, Akbar says it at one point in the story, or or somebody says it to Akbar, that he he prefers the polytheisms because the stories Uh, are better. I mean, that's essentially true. If you look at whether it's, you know the Nordic myths, which were originally, of course, the Norse religion. Um, you know the stories of Odin and so on. Then um, the Twilight of the Gods, all that stuff. Or whether you look at the Greek and Roman stories, or the Hindu great, great storehouse of Hindu mythology. Um, they're fantastic stories. And the other thing that's really attractive about the go- the, the gods of the of the Polytheistic religions is that they are not good. <laughs> I mean, these gods are egotistic, vain, vengeful, petty, um, oversexed. Um, most of them are rapists. Um, they behave badly. You know, gods behaving badly. That's what happens in in these pantheons, and 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 therefore. They don't ask. They do not pose as moral examples. They do not say, "Do do as we do." You know, what they instead are—they uh, are representations of our writ large. You know, on a much bigger scale, uh, with all our faults and so on. Um, and that because they do not seek to be moral examples, they do not seek to demonstrate how to be good. They're very attractive. You know, they're, they're not pompous and phony. They're greedy and vain and angry and violent and sometimes loving and, you know, nice, but mostly hideous um, and irresistible, you know, irresistible. And they turn themselves into snakes and, you know, bulls. So I mean, it's very interesting how often an animal is involved in an act of seduction. You know, so, so um, you know, Leda and the swan. Sure. Europa and the bull. They're all Jupiter, (laughs) just turning himself into various animals. Because clearly, he thought that's what girls liked. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And that the thing is that the the storehouse of of stories that come out of these religions um, is inexhaustible. So if you're a person who likes reading and wishes to make up stories, They are much more attractive than these narrow, moralizing, monotheistic tales. You know, I mean, who needs them? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This book takes history
0: and mixes it uh, almost uh, perfectly with fantasy. And one of the things I like about the way you use the elements of the fantastic is that you use it to help externalize, to bring stuff out that we can't talk about otherwise because mm. I think that and this is something that uh, a writer I've talked to, Karen Joy Fowler, she says that mimetic mm. realism is no longer adequate mm. to describe a world where Arnold Schwarzenegger can be the governor of California. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons that you use the fantastic because you can get beyond Yes.
2: The what? world is the world is no longer naturalistic. You know, I mean, that's that's the truth. Um, you know, through the surface of alleged naturalistic existence, there burst out these curious, surrealistic growths, which you know, which I guess one might call bushes. <laughs> <laughs> So, and then one has to make sense of them, you know, and it's a little little horticultural metaphor. Um, you know, Dorothy Parker once said, you can lead a horticulture, but you cannot make her think. Um, <laughs> it somehow seems relevant, I don't know how. <laughs> completely I've Uh, stumped him yeah
0: (laughs) one of the characters um, my favorite characters in this book is is Niccolo Machiavelli Mm -hmm. and you do a fabulous job at creating the circumstances under which he wrote his most famous work The Prince Mm -hmm. and could you talk about that how you managed to mix the fiction and the fact uh, it must have been difficult
2: to keep track Machia- of all about, that. Ma- you know, the thing about the, the way in which Machiavelli is portrayed in the book is that it's essentially almost all fact. I, mean, that's a, he, I, I really believe that he kind of was like this. You know, that he, um, I mean, I've always felt that Machiavelli got a very bad rap you know, from history because the truth is that, I mean, to put it simply, that he was not Machiavellian. You know, no, this, uh, not at all. this idea that he, uh, that his name has come to represent deviousness and cynicism and amorality and ruthlessness, and you know, power, power politics at its most naked and ugly, um, is is a classic, in my view, case of shooting the messenger. Because I mean, he's, there's one of the characters in the novel says to him, I mean, angrily says to him that, that your problem is that you see too clearly and unkindly, and then you can't keep your mouth shut. You know, you have to say it. You have to say everything that you see. And I think, you know, remember that he's living at this time of of colossally cynical and brutal princes. You know, the, the Medicis, the Borgias. You know, even the Pope, the papacy itself is more or less at the mercy of these great families. And, and actually, at the time that the book is set, during his life, the, even the Pope is a Medici. You know, so the family even controls the papacy. In, in the most deeply cynical and non-religious way. Um, and he sees this happening and he, and he writes down, if you like, the, the underlying principles on which these princes act. You know, it is better to be cruel than to be kind. Um, he has this wonderful chapter which begins that the, what a prince should do when he takes power is do everything unpleasant that he has to do right away. Because after that, people will think he's getting nicer. <laughs> because, because, because nothing could be as bad as the way he began. So after that, people say, oh, he's not so bad after all. Look, he's nicer he's now. He's not killing people anymore. He's not torturing people anymore. He, cause that's because he did that already. You know? um, so, and, and Machiavelli, remember, at the point that he's writing this book, is a very, very disappointed and disenchanted man. You know, after the time of the Florentine Republic when he was actually in power, The Medicis come back to power, and they fire him and torture him and eventually exile him. And there he is, suddenly exiled from his beloved city, um, having been tortured by the prince. This is not a lover of princes. you know. Uh, And then he writes this deeply disenchanted book, which oddly he thinks might get him back in favor with the princes. (laughs) It sends it off to them to read. And I mean, there's no evidence that they ever even looked at it. And he certainly never was allowed back into the city, and so he dies this, died this very disappointed death. It's a kind of sad story about a man who was actually rather a, rather a likable chap. I mean, remember that Machiavelli wrote the most popular comedy of the Renaissance. He wrote the, his play, The Mandrake Root, La Mandragola, uh, was the, the hit comedy of the age.
0: And even though it was um, ribald, the Pope really liked it.
2: The the pope of, liked it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he wrote other other comedies too, Clizia and so on, which were almost as popular. Um, he was also qu- quite the kind of life and soul of the party. There's a. There's a subsidiary character in the novel who also really existed, who was a member of the Vespucci family, a kind of distant cousin of Amerigo Vespucci, uh, called Agostino Vespucci, who was actually who actually worked with Machiavelli during their time in office during the time of the Florentine Republic. They were clerks in the same government department. Argo Vespucci, there's a moment, there's a, story, a letter that survived from him to Machiavelli when machiavelli was out of town on florentine business somewhere in rome i think anyway this letter says would you please hurry home because when you're not here there's nobody to organize the fun <laughs> <laughs> and it's clear that this is the kind of guy he was and yet we have this very other image of him which i just wanted to rectify i mean so I, this is my the novel that rehabilitates machiavelli <laughs> as nice guy and cool dude <laughs>
0: Sir Salman Rushdie, thank you for joining us here. And I'd like to thank, thank Capitol thank of the Cafe.